Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Think Cap Trivia. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you're tuning in for the first time, let me go over quickly how this podcast is structured at the beginning of the show. I'm going to pose a couple of trivia questions to you and then give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'll give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. After last week's themed show for Halloween, which I hope you enjoyed, we are back to general trivia this week, so you can expect questions from all over the place, and you never know what you're going to get. If you're a fan of the show, I ask that you would please tell a friend or fellow trivia lover about ThinkCap. Getting the word out there about the podcast really helps me to grow my content that I can produce for you. And to keep up with all that content, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. All right, with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap Trivia and let's get this show started. So, like I just mentioned, I've got a couple different questions for you today, and what I'm going to do is go through and read each question one by one, give you a few moments to think about your answers, and then go through and break down each question for you. So sit back and relax, and let me read these questions. Alright, question number one. In a deck of playing cards, what king is sometimes referred to as the suicide king because he appears to be sticking a sword through his head? Once again, in a deck of playing cards, which king is sometimes referred to as the Suicide King because he appears to be sticking a sword through his head? Question number two. In 2013, what musical, based on a movie, became the first show to gross $1 billion on Broadway? Once again, in 2013, what musical, which was based on a movie, became the first show to gross $1 billion on Broadway? Question number three. In the traditional Irish sport of hurling, how many points does a player score for a goal? Once again, in the traditional Irish sport of hurling, how many points does a player score for a goal? Question number four. While oxygen and nitrogen make up about 99% of the air we breathe, what is the next most prominent element at about 0.93%? Once again, while oxygen and nitrogen make up 99% of the air we breathe, what is the next most prominent element at 0.93%? Question number five. What 1876 novel, which is still popular today, was the first to be written on a typewriter? 
Once again, what 1876 novel, which is still popular today, was the first to be written on a typewriter? Question number six. What kind of animal is an Australian sea wasp? Once again, what kind of animal is an Australian sea wasp? Question number seven. In what West Coast city did the Beatles perform their final concert? Once again, in what West Coast American city did the Beatles perform their final concert? Question number eight. Found on the Great Seal of the United States, in addition to many coins, what does the phrase e pluribus unum mean when translated from Latin? Once again, found on the Great Seal of the United States, in addition to many coins, what does the phrase e pluribus unum mean when translated from Latin? Question number nine, what is the largest artery in the human body? Once again, what is the largest artery in the human body? And question number 10, this is our last question this week. What family member did President Eisenhower name the presidential retreat Camp David after? Once again, what family member did President Eisenhower name the presidential retreat Camp David after? Who did he name it after? All right, so now that I have read all 10 questions for you and I've given you a few moments to think about your answers, what I'm going to do is circle back to question number one and start going through each question, each answer, and give you a little bit of fun facts behind each answer. So let's get right into it with question number one. Question number one was... In a deck of playing cards, which king is sometimes referred to as the Suicide King because he appears to be sticking a sword through his head? And your correct answer is the King of Hearts. The King of Hearts is the right answer. And the precise origin of playing cards continues to be the subject of debate among scholars. And even the best theories really rely more on speculation than proof. We have clear historical evidence that playing cards began to appear in Europe in the late 1300s and early 1400s, but they most likely had their origins in China, as the earliest apparent reference we have to card games comes from the Tang Dynasty around the 9th century AD, when Princess Tong Chang played a, quote, leaf game with 868 members of the Wei clan. By the 11th century, playing cards were spreading throughout the Asian continent and would eventually find a home in Egypt. The oldest known playing cards we have are four fragments found in the Kier collection and one is in the Benkai Museum. You'll have to fast forward a little bit to find the true first dated written reference to modern card games as on July 17th of 1294, Two Chinese men were caught playing cards, and as a result, their nine cards and the wood blocks for printing them were impounded. At the time, they used a wood block printing method. And I think the implication here is that the card games of this sort were kind of illegal at the time, and so this instance was officially documented as a result. They would make their way to Europe as well, with the first official record of cards occurring in the year 1377 in Florentine. 
That same year, we have documentation from Jine of Rheinfelden, who described the moral meaning of playing cards. And over time, playing cards and card games would kind of spread through different geographical regions, and each culture would have their own impact on the card and the games being played there. That's kind of what I was trying to conjure up there with the descriptions of the early origins of just how widespread card games are. And uh, one such example of this development is our modern King of Hearts, the Suicide King. So the Ruinaeus pattern of playing cards came from France and featured a decadent King of Hearts who carried an axe in the style as to be swinging it with one arm. But even this style of card may have been copied from Spanish cards. So this <laughs> pretty much where we got our Suicide, suicide King from was this uh, Ruinaeus from France, but even that may have come from Spanish. So again, it's just this huge conglomerate of um, different cultures kind of thrown together in our modern deck of cards. But anyway, over time, this style was used quite often and through different copying and printing methods, the image of that king holding an axe became less and less clear and distinct until it looked like he was simply holding a shaft of a weapon in his hand with the head of the axe hidden behind his head. So you, you couldn't entirely tell what it was, and as more and more cards were made, at some point the implied weapon became a sword, and the king still held it behind his head, appearing as if he had impaled himself with it, giving us our modern depiction of the suicide king. And now this doesn't even touch the surface of the deep historical impact of playing cards throughout mankind's history. Um, I'm sure I can go much more into detail about many, many, many facets of playing cards. For example, actually one quick one is that the Joker was actually an American card game invention. I'll, maybe I'll talk about that one in a later podcast. But um, yeah, so that's some playing card trivia for you guys to open up question number one. Question number two was, in 2013, what musical, which was based on a movie, became the first show to gross $1 billion on Broadway? And your correct answer was The Lion King. The Lion King is the right answer. Now, The Lion King is a Broadway musical which debuted on November 13th of 1997, and it was obviously based off of Disney's 1994 smash hit movie of the same name. It is Broadway's third longest running show in history behind Chicago, and if you listen to the past couple episodes, you might know this one, The Phantom of the Opera, which is number one, but it is also the highest grossing Broadway production of all time. Over 100 million people worldwide have seen the musical, and it has earned numerous awards and honors, including six Tony Awards, one for Best Musical and Best Direction of a Musical, making director Julie Taymor the first woman to ever earn that honor. It has earned its high money total not really from high ticket prices or special exclusive packages. It is pretty middle of the road as far as prices go but rather from simply being a consistently great show with an appeal to a large audience. In all of its 9,302 performances, only a small handful of times has the venue's capacity been below 80%. Alright, question number three. Was in the traditional Irish sport of hurling, how many points does a player score for a goal? 
And your correct answer, a goal in hurling gets you three points. Three is the right answer. Now, hurling is an ancient Irish game that has its first written reference in 1272 BC. So it is as old as pretty much Irish recorded time. And it's a game that's played with curved wooden sticks with flat ends, which are called a hurley, and a base, which is called a scillitar. The game combines skills from lacrosse, field hockey, and baseball into a hard-hitting, highly-paced game. Teams of 15 play on a rectangular grass pitch with H-shaped goals at each end, kind of like old-school football goalposts, except there's a net like a soccer net fashioned in the bottom section of the H. The primary objective of the game is to score points by driving the ball through the goal into the net for three points, or by putting the ball over the bar and scoring a single point. Players are allowed to strike the ball in the air with their hurleys, even if it's above head height, as well as on the ground. When the ball is on the ground, it cannot be handled, but it can be lifted from the ground using the hurley to be either caught in the hand or struck. Once caught in the hand, a player can carry the ball no more than three paces or they can balance it on the blade of their hurley while running. As well as striking the ball with the hurley, players can kick the ball or strike it with their hand, but you cannot just simply throw the ball. It's a fast-paced and hard-hitting game where tackling is allowed as long as you're not whacking the other player with your stick. Um, a good strike of the ball can make it fly at speeds of almost 100 miles per hour. So it's a real fast, real physical, hard-hitting game. And obviously the team with the highest score at the end of the match will win the ancient contest. I definitely recommend looking up hurling highlights online as uh, once you do, you can really quickly see how much athleticism is involved, how much fun it looks to play, and really why the Irish have loved the game for so long. Alright, question number four was, while oxygen and nitrogen make up 99% of the air we breathe, what is the next most prominent element at about 0.93%? And your correct answer is argon. Argon is the right answer. You know, air has small amounts of a lot of other gases in it too, such as carbon dioxide, neon, ozone, hydrogen. Um, it's really a bunch of different stuff, obviously, and all this air is contained in Earth's atmosphere, which is about 300 miles thick, but most of the atmosphere really is within 10 miles of the surface. And even though we can't see it and can only really feel it when there's a gust of wind, there is a ton of air above us at all times weighing down on us. The weight of all that air over you right now is called air pressure. At sea level, air pressure is about 14.7 pounds per square inch. If you go up to about 10,000 feet, the air pressure is just about 10 pounds per square inch. And it makes sense that air pressure is inversely proportional to altitude, as if you think about it, the higher up you are, the less air is above you, and therefore there is less air pressure to experience weighing down on you. And if you've ever felt your ears pop during a hike or after taking off in an airplane, that is due to the change in air pressure. Did you know there are other things in air besides just gas too? There are tiny microbial organisms called bioaerosols that live in the air 
Not really with the ability to fly, but they are so light that they kind of just float and travel via the wind, rain, or anything like that. And non-living things too that float through the air like dust and pollen are also known as simply aerosols. But yeah, it's easy to forget about, but there is a ton of pretty interesting stuff floating around you at pretty much all times in the air if you uh, really take time to, to learn about it. All right, question number five was, what 1876 novel, which is still popular today, was the first to be written on a typewriter? And your correct answer is, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer is your right answer by Mark Twain, of course. And although many modern typewriters have one of several similar designs, their invention was really incremental and developed by numerous inventors working independently or either in competition with each other over a series of decades, really. And historians have estimated that some form of typewriter was invented 52 times as uh, different people tried to come up with a workable design. In 1865, Reverend Rasmus Maling Henson of Denmark invented the Henson Writing Ball, which went into commercial production in 1870 and was the first commercially sold typewriter. It was a great success in Europe, and then Maling Henson made a porcelain model of the keyboard with his writing ball and experimented with different placements of the letters to achieve the fastest writing speeds and Maling Henson placed the letters on short pistons that went directly through the ball and down to the paper. This, together with the placement of the letters so that the fastest writing fingers struck the most frequently used letters, made the Henson writing ball the first typewriter to produce text really substantially faster than a person could write by hand. And they developed the typewriter further, and in 1875, the well-known, quote, tall model was patented, which was the first of the writing balls that worked without electricity. Maling Henson attended the first world exhibitions in Vienna in 1873 and Paris in 1878, and he received the first prize for his invention at both exhibitions. It was in 1874 that Mark Twain would purchase his first typewriter for $125. The next year, 1875, he wrote that he no longer wanted to use it because it was frustrating and made him want to swear. So although it was faster than writing, I guess it was still, there was a little bit of a learning curve for it. Um, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer was published in 1876, and this is the novel that he claims in his autobiography was the first to be written on a typewriter. However, his 1883 novel, Life on the Mississippi, was submitted originally as a typewritten manuscript, which was dictated from a handwritten draft. Historians believe that there is a chance that Twain misremembered his own process and actually wrote Life on the Mississippi on the typewriter first, and didn't write Tom Sawyer at all on that thing which he hated, but there is also a good chance that he was correct, and in that case, this piece of trivia holds true, and regardless, Twain was the first author to um, write a book on on the typewriter. It's just whether he remembered correctly or misremembered, but um, generally you can hold it true and acceptable that The Adventures of Tom Sawyer is the first. All right, question number six was, what kind of animal is an Australian sea wasp? And your correct answer is a jellyfish. A sea wasp is a jellyfish. The sea wasp 
is an extremely venomous jellyfish found in the coastal waters from northern Australia and New Guinea to Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. It has been described as the most lethal jellyfish in the world, with at least 63 known deaths in Australia from 1884 to 1996. The animal's upper bell portion can reach about the size of a basketball, so these things do get pretty large, and its tentacles can reach 10 feet long. Each tentacle is covered in millions of nidoctites, I think I said that right, which release tiny darts that infect any victim that touches it. Being stung commonly results in excruciating pain that has been likened to be being branded with a hot iron. So not very fun and if the sting area is significant, an untreated victim can die within two to five minutes. So very lethal, very painful and the amount of venom in one of these jellyfish is said to be enough to kill 60 humans so you do not want to run across an australian sea wasp they actually interestingly enough they're day hunters so at night they're seen resting on the ocean floor and when they're swimming and resting their tentacles can contract to only about six inches long so they can really kind of bundle themselves up when they're not hunting but it is when they are hunting and they have their tentacles at full length that you really do not want to run into an Australian sea wasp. All right, question number seven was, in which West Coast city did the Beatles perform their final concert? And your correct answer is San Francisco. San Francisco is the right answer, and I could really give an entire Beatles history here, but I'm going to just briefly focus on their final tour which occurred in 1966 across 13 different U.S. cities and Toronto. So the band toured amid lots of controversy in the States as John Lennon's infamous comments that the band was more popular than Jesus had grazed teen magazine date books cover only a couple weeks prior. This angered many Christian fundamentalists, primarily in the South, and they would burn their records and stop listening to the band's music. Interestingly enough, and I really didn't know this until I was kind of looking into uh, Lennon's comments, but the same magazine cover that angered everyone about the Jesus comments, there was also a Paul McCartney quote next to it that berated the country's treatment and perception of black folks, saying that the U.S. is, quote, a lousy country where anybody black is a dirty N-word, which surprisingly in this day and age, maybe not so much then, but that comment didn't nearly provoke the same response as Lenin's comment. And, you know, McCartney had a, a, a point about the American perception of black people at the time. But um, anyway, that's, that's uh, just an interesting side note uh, to look into. But um, the Beatles also had come out in opposition of the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War, which further angered many Americans because, to that point, about 90% of the population supported the war efforts. Prior to the American tour, they had already had touring controversy in places like Tokyo and Manila, where they had come to the conclusion that their tours were simply too large and complex to manage safely. As a result, the group made the decision to really stop touring altogether following their stint in the United States. After their show in Manila, George Harrison said of their preparation for the U.S. tour that, quote, 
we're gonna have a couple of weeks to recuperate before we go and get beaten up by the Americans. And upon arriving in Chicago at the beginning of the tour, John Lennon did issue an apology on television saying that he never meant it as a lousy anti-religious thing, obviously referring to his Jesus comments, and that did end up uh, appeasing some of the hate that the group was receiving, but it did not appease all of it. There were still instances of chaos on the tour, such as in Cleveland, when 2,000 fans broke through the barriers which separated the crowd from the stage, and in LA when the band was stranded at the venue for two hours after the show because of another 7,000 fans who broke through the fencing outside the band's dressing room. The group also would play a tense set in Memphis, Tennessee, which was their only stop in the Bible Belt on the tour. And although nothing really went wrong, at one point a fan threw a firecracker on stage, which the group perceived to be a gunshot when it exploded. Afterwards, they all noted that they instantly looked at John, expecting him to fall to a gunshot wound. Um, they all just instantly assumed it was a bullet right at John Lennon, but in the end it was just a firecracker, so there were no injuries on that particular day. Finally, they played their last show on August 29th at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. The stadium was originally the home for the San Francisco Giants of the MLB, just uh, as a little side note there, but knowing that this would be their last concert, members of the band each brought cameras on stage and McCartney had a rough audio tape recording from the field commissioned to commemorate their final performance. The show was performed in front of some 25,000 fans, but there were also about 7,000 tickets that went unsold most likely due to the controversy that the band had drummed up in the weeks prior. And man, I bet there are many people, many, many people who regret not buying those 7,000 tickets now looking back on it. But anyway, the show itself would go off without much of a hitch and the band was simply tired of the hysteria that followed them wherever they went. And um, I'm going to close this one out with a quote from George Harrison during the flight immediately after the show, and then a little bit later on. During the flight, Harrison was heard saying definitively, quote, that's it then, I'm not a Beatle anymore. And then uh, later he said, quote, we'd been through every race riot and every city we went to, there was some kind of jam going on and police control and people threatening to do this and that and us being confined to a little room or plane or car. We all had each other to dilute the stress and the sense of humor was very important, but there was a point where enough was enough." End quote. And they just reached that point just before their 1966 tour and from the sound of it, the spectacle that followed them really only confirmed their decision to quit touring after their uh, trip to the States. All right, question number eight was found on the great seal of the United States and in addition to many coins, what does the phrase e pluribus unum mean when translated from Latin? And your correct answer is one out of many. One out of many is the literal translation, but the phrase is used more to describe the action of many uniting into one. So if that's kind of what you're going for, I'll give that one to you too. But uh, the Great Seal of the United States includes the coat of arms, which you may be familiar with. It contains imagery of an eagle with its wings and legs spread wide, holding arrows in one set of talons and an olive branch in its others. A red, white, and blue shield is covering the eagle's chest, while a banner carried in its beak and flowing above its head reads, E Pluribus Unum. 
When the original committee Congress was tasked with creating a seal for their new country, they decided on e pluribus unum to be their motto, which would tie together the seal's imagery, which included elements from different countries from which many new Americans had emigrated, including England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Holland, and Germany. And although this initial design with elements from those countries uh, was not used, Charles Thompson's 1782 design, which is the seal we use today, still decided to employ the motto that translates to many uniting into one. Thompson himself said that the motto worked well because e pluribus unum alludes to the union between the states and federal government, which is symbolized by the shield on the eagle's breast. The shield's 13 stripes represent the several states all joined into one solid compact entirety supporting a chief, which unites the whole and represents Congress. Question number nine was, which is the largest artery in the human body? And your correct answer is the aorta. The aorta is the right answer. Now our bodies have two main types of blood vessels which move blood around our bodies. We have veins and we have arteries. Veins carry blood that is low in oxygen from the body back to the heart for recirculation, while arteries carry reoxygenated blood from the heart to the rest of your body. So here we're talking about the aorta, which is an artery, meaning that it is essentially the main passageway from the heart's big muscular pumping chamber. The artery is about a foot in length and just about an inch in diameter. It begins at the top of the left ventricle and pumps blood through the aortic valve to the rest of the body. This artery is divided into four sections. You have the ascending aorta, which rises straight from the heart about two inches, has coronary arteries that branch off it and supply the heart with blood. You have the aortic arch, which curves over the heart, gives, the, gives rise to branches that bring blood to the head, neck, and arms. Then you have the descending thoracic aorta, which travels down through the chest, has smaller branches that supply blood to the ribs and other parts of your chest. And you have the abdominal aorta, which begins at the diaphragm, splits off to become the paired iliac arteries in the lower abdomen, which supply blood to most of your major organs. So essentially the aorta is responsible for distributing oxygenated blood to all parts of your body through your circulatory system. All right, and finally, question number 10 was, what family member did President Eisenhower name the presidential retreat of Camp David after? And your correct answer, is his grandson. His grandson is the right answer. Camp David is a presidential retreat nestled in Maryland's Catoctin Mountain Park, about 60 miles north of Washington, D.C. The campsite originated as a camp for federal employees and their families in the late 1930s. Construction of the area started in 1935 and was completed in 1938. In 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt converted it to a presidential retreat and named it Shangri-La, which was the name of a fictional Himalayan paradise from British author James Hilton's 1933 novel Lost Horizon. Over the years, presidents have enjoyed the campground and have made their own additions to the property. President Eisenhower had golf course architect Robert Trent Jones design a practice golf facility at Camp David, 
Around 1954, Jones built one golf hole, a par 3, with four different tees, and Eisenhower added a 250-yard driving range near the helicopter landing zone. Richard Nixon directed the construction of a swimming pool and other improvements to the camp's Aspen Lodge, but no president used the retreat more than President Ronald Reagan. President Reagan visited the area 189 times over the course of his presidency. Most recently, President Donald Trump hosted Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan at Camp David in preparation for the 2018 midterm elections, and the 46th G7 summit was to be held at Camp David this past June, but it was canceled due to the health concerns over the coronavirus. So it'll be interesting to see um, how much President-elect Joe Biden will use uh, Camp David. Um, seems like he's got a lot of work to do, so we'll uh, we'll see what old Joe can uh, can do for us. But yeah, uh, Camp David, named after President Eisenhower's grandson. All right, now that brings us to the end of the show. If you have made it this far, I really, really thank you for hanging out with me, and I really hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask you to please share it with a friend. Um, like I said at the beginning of the show, any any word to get out about ThinkCap really helps me to grow. Um, if you enjoyed it, um, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can on whatever streaming platform you listen on. Any feedback from you guys is huge, and it'll really help us to keep this thing moving. In addition, I love hearing what you guys want to learn about. If you have any fun trivia facts you want to learn or uh, questions pertaining to certain topics, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts or send me a direct message on there. I would love to include um, your uh, ideas about questions into the show. And once again, that is the end of this episode. So I thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care.